So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the crackdown on Republican protesters, the Ukrainian fight back and the madness of mermaids. So since the death of Queen Elizabeth last week, there's been something of a concerted crackdown on Republican dissent, I think it's fair to say. There have been several protesters who've been arrested and charged, sometimes with this kind of archaic breach of the peace law. We've had people holding up signs saying, fuck imperialism, abolish monarchy, being arrested. Someone was arrested and de-arrested for saying essentially that Charles wasn't elected. Someone's been arrested and charged for heckling Prince Andrew. Um, Tom, what have you made of this? I mean, that's just a tiny sample, of actually, of, of some of the kind of crackdown that's been going on. It is. I think probably concerted crackdown might be putting it a little bit too firmly, but nevertheless, there's obviously been these bunch of cases which are very concerning um, and really show how, given the police have such discretionary power in this particular area, that as soon as there is a kind of mood of very firm consensus, as, as there has been, you know, in relation to... Uh, National Act of Public Mourning and all the rest of it, that you see these instances of overreach and mm. not just once, but twice and three times. I mean, there's been a kind of string of cases which have been really shocking on their own terms and therefore really should um, raise the hackles of anyone who cares about freedom of speech. As you were saying, two people in Edinburgh actually charged, arrested and charged with this breach of the peace. Um, there was the man in Oxford um, who was arrested and then de-arrested, like you say. The, the guy in Westminster, the young barrister, who was threatened with arrest mm. for holding a blank piece of paper on yeah. which he had threatened to write, not my king. And as a consequence of this, the police officer said it may offend people. And as I say, very narrowly escaped getting arrested in that case. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I think it speaks to a kind of a much broader problem, which is that for some time now, where it, whether it comes to freedom of speech, but also whether it, where it comes to protest as well, the police have very broad powers. They've been broadened even further still mm. in recent months. And so as a consequence of that, you're um, leaving what is a fundamental liberty in the, in the hands of individual police officers who have wide scope to abuse the powers that they have. So that's something that I think, you know, regardless of where you come out on this question, has to be taken very, very seriously. It's not the only time this has happened. I think some people are trying to pretend like this is just a function of um, kind of post-Boris Johnson authoritarian Tory rule, which yeah. is 100% not the Policing the case. act is to blame or something exactly. like that. Exactly, which is, which is actually quite misleading in the sense that none, none of these people were charged, arrested under that particular act. It's older pieces of legislation. The two people who are actually charged in Scotland, it's under a completely different piece of 2010 legislation, incidentally. But nevertheless, this is a problem and we need to deal with it because it's been building up for decades, these kinds of powers, not mm. just in the course of the past, the last government. You know. Yeah, I mean, Ella, this is, you know, nothing new. You know, we live in a country where it's something north of 3,000 people a year are arrested, particularly just for saying things online. You know, people are um, taken away by police for, uh, or, you know, stopped by police from protesting too vigorously and things like that. This is just a serious problem in general. Yes, yeah, but if you want to see a silver lining to 
uh, what is kind of very, you know, sort of distressing thing to see, which is that people getting yanked around for as Tom says, holding up blank bits of paper or even shouting who elected him mm. outside of church in Oxford is the fact that, you know, it, it, it brings home the importance of free speech to a lot of people. And as Tom is right in saying, there's quite a fair few hypocrites on social media at the moment yeah. saying, you know, why, where are the free speeches now talking yeah. about the queen? It's like, hello, we, you know, join the party. We've been saying this for a very, very long time. If you're upset about police accosting people, protesting the monarchy, then you should also be upset about people being arrested for tweeting about, you know, gender critical issues mm. or things yeah. like that. Um, so, you know, come join us now that you've seen the light <laughs> yeah. of how important free speech they're is. They're not going to join us. They can try. They didn't even try to pretend that they'd had some Davocene conversion either. Cause as you say, the, the commentary from the sort of woke left, shall we say, was just, where are all the free speeches now? Even though yeah. we were all there condemning it yeah. more strongly than they would, because they're fundamentally just interested in a gotcha mm. with this particular issue. But it is striking how upset, people on that side of politics are at a handful of arrests, mm. given the fact that, as you point to Fraser, literally thousands of people have been arrested for online speech. It was three and a bit thousand in 2016 alone. We've seen it carry on since then. And so, you know, even if we're being generous, I think the most these people are defending at this point is the freedom to vigorously agree with them in public. Yeah. And that's all they've ever really been that interested in. And that's why they don't really care about this particular. That's why they still use the word, you know, they still write free speech in quote marks as if free speech is not really a thing. (laughs) Or, you know, free speech is only really about defending bigots and racists and your right to say horrible stuff. I suppose the important new development um, is that what has become um, the kind of new way in which the police enforce these kind of laws or have this kind of authoritarian action is that it's through the language of offence, mm. which, you know, previously you would have just sort of been like, that's the law, shut up. But with the case of the um, guy in Westminster who was sort of testing mm. the law by coming out with the blank piece of paper, it, you know, he said to the police officer, he was sort of filming it, what, well, what, what am I doing? What, who am I, you know, what law am I breaking? All that kind of thing. And the police officer kind of said, oh, well, I don't know, someone might get offended. And actually mm-hmm. a, a, somebody high up in the police came out and said, look, that you know, it's not illegal to protest. One of the problems we have here is that there are individual police officers who do not understand that uh, they're not allowed to crack heads <laughs> over posters and chants. And, you know, this doesn't just extend to um, what's happening kind of in and around Westminster or at vigils and things like that. It's, you know, we've seen in the news that both Celtic fans and Rangers fans, for example, at football matches are being threatened with fines for either holding up signs saying, you know, F the monarchy or playing the national anthem. And there is, you know, it's becoming extremely hard to become, to maintain the kind of performance of a polite Republican at the moment, because, you know, there is this, uh, it uh, it reminds me of the pandemic actually, which is that when there are big things happening, you know, Mm. whether it's like, don't question the science or mourn the queen, that there is this sort of automatic drive to censor any kind of, not just disagreement, but anything that's sort of like, you know, even in this instance, a bit distasteful, heckling coffins and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the sort of new thing that's happened, I think, which is that we are f- we are sort of far more quick to push the censor button rather than um, actually this being a kind of uh, a state crackdown. It is, and legislatively it is, because there's more and censorious um, pieces of law on the books, 
But it's also the case that I've been sort of disheartened by the support on um, social media and other kind of in, and political commentators saying, well, you know, this really shouldn't be allowed to happen when yeah, we're talking yeah. about free speech in the public square. I have to say that I don't think that's been as pronounced as I might have suspected it might have been. I mean, certainly all of the main kind of free speech organisations, free speech sort of pundits, all the rest of it, I think have rushed to defend these people, if anything. Because there is this idea, which I think it's important to it's important to give people, you know, their credit for maintaining that particular principle. But it's also important to explode this idea that is on the other side of this argument, which is that no one's everyone's a hypocrite when it comes to freedom of speech. That you're only ever really agitating to defend people you agree with. Um, not only is that nonsense, and it's a, a pretty bad case of projection. I think it's also quite dangerous because it's just if that becomes the assumption, then you're never going to really be able to have that kind of across the different political lines sort of support freedom of speech. People are genuinely cynical about that point to begin with. I just find it so strange that people are kind of shocked that this is happening, given the fact that that free floating culture of offence, which we now have, mm. which kind of get, then gets meshed with these police powers, which even before the policing acts, you know, like the Public Order Act, which a couple of people got um, threatened under, but not properly arrested under, at least in the UK, over these Republican protests, you know, it, clamps down on behaviour that has that can cause harassment, fear and distress or something. Mm. These are very vague concepts which can easily be um, weaponized or just used. And I find it interesting on the one hand that a lot of people haven't piped up about that particular law at all, yeah. even though it's also a case of Tory authoritarianism. 1986, yeah. wake of the Brixton rights and the miners' strike, these broad sweeping laws brought in. Um, but also I think we need to hold a lot of people to account for the fact that that free floating culture of offence, which just allows any given police officer any given day to say, that's going to upset people, therefore I need to um, arrest you. They rolled the pitch for that, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. They've normalised it, they've demanded that the authorities play this particular role, and now they're kind of feigning surprise that it occasionally catches up with them. But of course it is. How could it not, <laughs> given you know how broad and potentially like endless that kind of prohibition on speech is? With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So let's move on to some good news. The stunning uh, fight back in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is currently claiming that it's captured around 8,000 square miles, or recaptured, I should say, around 8,000 square miles worth of territory back from uh, the Russians. Um, Tom, I mean, what have you, what's your reaction to this? Because it just is, you know, it seems to have exploded this idea mm. that Ukraine, you know, not only coming from Putin, but maybe some on the West, that Ukraine should have just given up, should have sued for peace, should have, uh, you know, recognized the limits of uh, mm. what it can achieve. What have you made of it? No, it really completely upends that particular narrative that we were just getting into this kind of grinding stalemate and that the ultimate beneficiaries of that were going to be Russia and that the ability of Ukraine to properly counterattack was just going to be, um, was just something which wasn't on the cards. I mean, it really was quite stunning, you know, especially because of the fact that it defied so many people's expectations, including mm. commentators in the West, but also Russia who were caught out because for so long, obviously it was being sort of telegraphed that this was going to be a counteroffensive in the South around Kherson. And then when all of these Russian units were obviously 
redeployed there to try and firm up their defences in the north in Kharkiv. You see this, you see this push, and taking some very significant territory. You know, mm. particularly people are talking about Izum and Kupiansk as two clear places which will really kind of potentially hobble Russia from here on out because of their importance logistically as mm. kind of you know feeding supplies through to their effort and all the rest of it. So it's um, not only the amount of land that's been taken, but also the sort of places that have now been recaptured is really, really significant. And as you say, definitely completely upsets that claim that it was all just sort of hopeless, um, mm. that there wasn't going to be, they were, that essentially, you know, we were just sort of setting them up to fail and that they'll be fighting to the last Ukrainian and all the rest of it. It's very early days. It's, it would be ridiculously um optimistic to talk about this right now as a clear inflection point mm. to say that this is going to, you know, this is the beginning of the end or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely was stunning and defied expectations, mm. um, which was brilliant to see. And it's defied expectations in, in Russia as well. You know, you've seen people trying to flap around, come up with explanations. Mm. This is a just a regrouping or even you've had people to uh, Vladimir Putin's right saying, you know, this is unacceptable. This is, uh, you know, he's He's not being strong enough on Ukraine. What yeah. have you made of that kind of side of it? Um, there was a great point made by my colleague at the Battle of Ideas Festival, Jacob Reynolds, who wrote a piece for Spike this week. And actually he was in Ukraine mm. um, last week. So was sort of there when all of this was uh, unfolding. Um, where he says, you know, people have underestimated Ukraine and there's always been this narrative that they, well, you know, there's been this sort of narrative that you can understand, which is that, okay, they can defend, but they can't attack. Yeah. And that the, you know, Ukraine was never going to be able to match the might of the Russian army. But actually he made the point that it's not just about the sort of the army you're wearing and the weaponry you have and how, even just how many bodies you have to fight the battle, that actually the way in which Ukraine has been fighting in terms of mobilizing an entire nation, mm. uh, you know, literally all of its citizens and all of its focus and and all of its sort of solidarity and support in comparison with Russia, who has maintained this idea that this is just a kind of special operation. Don't yeah. look too closely. Don't, you know, pretend everything's um, sort of just swimming, going along swimmingly, despite these um, huge losses, has meant that actually Ukraine is in a much stronger position, or it seems so at the moment. And when you read accounts, there was a, um, a really good one that I read from a, a woman who went and in the kind of retreat of Russian soldiers found you know, just one example, found a notebook, a medical notebook that found that, you know, revealed that Russian soldiers were sort of reporting bullshit, as she put it, back up to the higher ranks. Yeah. And so then there wasn't a clear picture of what was happening at the front. And so then, you know, that inevitably leads to a miscalculation. All these sort of little things about how Russia has, and Putin has been sort of playing, ha has been sort of um, playing a particular kind of game that seems to have backfired in this instance mm. of not being particularly truthful which I think for those of us watching from abroad gives you hope in expressing solidarity with the anti-war sentiment in Russia, because there is something, there are um, kind of chinks in the armor there. Yeah. It's not true that every Russian mm. is, you know, very much paid up Kremlin supporter. And I think that's a really, you know, that's something that Tom is absolutely right. And Jacob makes this point. Nobody start flying the bunting now or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's discussions about nuclear attacks and all of that on the table whether or not that is, you know, a likelihood or not, who knows. But anyway, it seems like this is this is good news and you mm. should celebrate your victories mm. when they come. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there's not just talk of it being the end of the war, but also the end of the Putin regime, which seems for the moment to be getting a little bit ahead of itself. Mm. But, you know, still good news. No, definitely. I, I think that point about um, essentially, you know, people have talked about this as an asymmetric 
fight from the from the off. Um, but one kind of form of the asymmetry was the, the kind of will to to win and to yeah. triumph, which is um, so much on Ukraine's side. Obviously, you know mm. this is a fight for their national survival, for their national sovereignty, for their own territory. Whereas, given the fact that at least officially, according to Russia, this isn't even a war; it's a special yeah. military operation. Therefore. That has implications, meaning they can't generally just have a general mobilization. They're relying mm. on these mercenaries and these conscripts, you know, throwing money at people in Russia to try and actually sign up in order to fight. Um, and so that obviously has clear impacts as well. And I think the the strength of feeling, of, which obviously, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but it wasn't clear to some commentators, shall we say, at the beginning, really does show that this is a proper nation, mm. you know, contrary to what some jaded Western commentators or Putinists would say, um, in the stunning counteroffensive, you see a clear sense of of that desire to defend themselves, defend their own communities. And in those kind of incredible videos that you see coming out of people actually for the first time in six months, you know, seeing Ukrainian troops roll in and having reclaimed the territory, you see again that myth just kind of go by the wayside that this is a proper country. And that's why it's fighting so hard to defend itself. And it's it's important to note there, I mean, people will obviously say, oh, well, you know, it's, this is just Western weapons. They've got the might of America um, behind them. But as Jacob Reynolds makes this this point very well, you know, so did the Afghanistan army. Mm. They mm. had all this fantastic, yeah. you know, glittering American equipment. And now the Taliban has got it. And now the Taliban has got it. <laughs> <laughs> but he yeah. If you don't have the will to use yeah. it, if you don't have the, you know, if you don't believe in the nation you're fighting for, mm -hmm. then it's pointless. And he makes the point that in actual fact, one of the one of the things that Ukraine and Zelensky has done very successfully is told the Americans to take a back seat when when necessary. Yeah. And said, you know, you know, and there's a lot of kind of bleating going on in Washington about how important their role has been in advising the war effort and all that kind of thing. And and you know, Zelensky would probably be the first person to say hats off to the West for giving us all the kind of um, materials that we need, but it's very much been clear that you know, particularly in relation to that defiant stance of mm. just uh, the sort of of successfully obstinate sort of yeah. stubbornness in Ukraine of saying, we know the land, we know the kind of the tactics. Actually, we know the enemy better than most of you, which is a kind of a, a weird sort of intricacy of this battle is that they, these, you know, these are sort of in, in some ways countrymen in, in it, in one way, which actually is something that's been kicked up in terms of the narrative in Russia at the moment. You've got lots of people saying, well, hang on a minute, changing tack and saying, oh, the Ukrainians are, are, oh, our, are, brothers. are our brothers, that kind of thing. Cousins of, And all yeah. of that has meant that actually um, both their defence and now their attack has been more successful than if they listened to not just the kind mm. of international relations crowd in you know, the West saying, oh, you'll never win, give it up, but also the kind of this sort of very cautious, cautiously, cautiously approach of um, British and American military experts. Well, it's, worth, it's worth remembering that, you know, at the beginning of the war, the US intelligence gave, you know, Ukraine about three days to yeah. last mm -hmm. before uh, Kiev was going to fall. They tried, you know, they encouraged Zelensky to get out while he could, yeah. offered him, you know, a helicopter out of, out of town and he stayed. No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's probably worth pointing out that at least according to New York Times, a newspaper I obviously trust implicitly, um, they had an interesting piece talking about kind of lifting the lid a little bit on the kind of intelligence sharing mm. between the West, particularly the US and Ukraine and the role that played in shaping this particular counteroffensive. Um, there's obviously different kind of reports on that particular subject. Um, and also, you know, a lot of excitement about the kind of firepower that was now making its way to Ukraine, the high Mars and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and I just wonder the people who really either hesitated or were dead against supporting Ukraine in this way. What would you rather this didn't happen? Yeah. You know, would you rather they they were still in control of that territory? Would you rather that no attempt was made to at least give the Ukrainians what they need to make a good fist of it at all? I think those are important questions to ask ourselves, even though it's nowhere near over. There's all sorts of things which could be um, coming down the line. There's all sorts of potential for escalation as well, all that we need to take seriously. But I think um, that's something, it's it's worth reflecting on, you know, how much has at least changed for the near term right now and how much important that Western support was in it without obviously taking the initiative away from the Ukrainians themselves, which of course is all that. So now let's move on to Mermaids. So Mermaids is the trans youth charity that is currently in court. It's taking the LGB Alliance to court in order to try and strip it of its charity status. People who don't know the LGB Alliance campaigns for the rights of same-sex attracted people. And there seems to be a sort of familiar pattern um, emerging here that every time um, trans ideology, let's put it, ends up having to explain itself in court it doesn't go very well. It's like it's, it's you know, logical inconsistencies get exposed under quite a harsh glare in a way that they might not. It's such a wonderful own goal, this is. <laughs> it really, you know, if you were a, 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 in any way involved in the team at the LGB Alliance, you'd just be rubbing your hands every day because the more rope that um, mermaids are given, the more they look like they're so hell-bent on hanging themselves in all lines of questioning. And, you know, this is one of the, this is one of the ways in which Twitter should be absolutely celebrated because you have these kind of live tweet mm. of the tribunals. It's been fascinating to watch and read is that in every um, interaction they have with lawyers, they just look like mad people. Like really, mm. they just look unhinged. On the one hand, it's baffling because this is an organization that is obviously, you know, um, has a reputation for having a certain kind of expertise in this area. And, you know, it does, gives us a lot of advice to, um, particularly young people who they say are struggling with gender identity issues, who now are in court, are its representatives are continuously saying, we're not an expert, we haven't read the CAS review, we don't know anything about this, I don't know about medicine, you know, all the stuff that yeah. reveals them as, you know, as I guess not really knowing their brief, and that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, they're just simply coming out with these one-liners like, um, it's even kind of hard. It sort of becomes word soup. It's hard to follow. But you I know, think it was that John Nicholson MP one where he talks yeah. about how you're a lesbian if you decide you are one or something. Like, yeah. If you if you feel or, yourself to be one. Yeah. Or <laughs> indeed, it seems some, to me a quite dangerous standard to set. Or indeed, quite curious. Well, one it's, as well, it's a bit kind of it's a bit like that sort of old school prejudice against lesbian, which is just like oh, they're just you know these people over there lesbians. That's yeah. not really a real thing. And so and, yeah. so much a, so that you. Can, I could just wander into that yeah. mark. But there was also there was also a representative who said, um, I can't remember who it was, who said, you know, uh, babies don't come out of the womb with a sex. Yeah, this was the chair of the trustees. Which yeah. is, you know, a, 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 just I think anybody... Every cell in that baby's body is, yeah. is sexed. <laughs> like, I think know, anybody not... watching um, the tribunal will realise what a kind of dark hole yeah. this whole yeah. kind of gender ideology stuff has gone down. And it would be, you would be forgiven for thinking this is just a, what a kind of weird in, spat in between this sort of world of, um, you know, sex politics and gender politics and all of that. But it's actually very important because the thing about mermaids is they have such influence. They have mm -hmm. such real world influence on individuals as yeah. well as organisations that it is just a wonderful thing that they're being taken apart in public. And, and, and you know, such high level support from the likes of 
Prince Harry from yeah. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez yeah. in the US. Who I guess wouldn't, who I guess would some, a lot of those people are probably, if they're watching the tribunal, they're realizing stuff about this organization that they didn't know. Or just mm. realizing things about the, the ideology more broadly mm. that mm -hmm. is, you know, let's be honest, is shared by a lot of these organizations rather than, you know, caused by, by one of them. Um, I mean, Tom, one of the, one of the interesting comments was this idea that it's transphobic mm -hmm. to essentially, um, be attracted to someone of the same sex mm -hmm. and to exclude, um, a trans person from your dating pool. I mean, what have you made of that? That was put forward by one of the expert witnesses. Well, and that's one of the things that the kind of LGB Alliance side in this particular tribunal have been very good at teasing out, mm. which is, um, essentially the quite troubling implications of this form of trans ideology for same-sex attracted people. Mm. You know, effectively saying that to be attracted to someone of the same sex is in itself transphobic because you're excluding lesbians with penises and so on and so mm. forth. And I think that's one thing that they've done very effectively is just to show up, not just how kind of ridiculous that would seem to many people, but also how deeply troubling. I yeah. mean, you know, you're, you are really kind of going down a very dark road when you do that. And even the whole nature of this particular complaint to this attempt to strip the LGB alliance of its status, um, similarly kind of speaks to the fact that trans ideology seems to be demanding that the ability of LGB people to organize around their own particular interests mm. is just in and of itself wrong. You can't do that, you know, and that's something which why there's, there's quite high stakes around this particular case, even though it can seem like an um, knee sign kind of spat from the outside. It's, um, yeah, it's just it's trying to suggest that it's wrong, improper, illegal even to have a charity which represents the interests of same-sex attracted people. And that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly progressive <laughs> song. And, th and this is the trend that is that that yeah. we see with gender ideology. It's not just the question of, you know, the issue of, for example, puberty blockers with kids that yeah. obviously is mm -hmm. quite relevant to mermaids or other controversies around the fuss about gender ideology. But it is this fact that these um, people who are involved in activism around destructing the whole notion of sex mm. aren't just interested in putting forward their own point of view. They're saying women can't do their thing yeah. when they want to, I don't know, swim in hamster ponds alone or yeah. any of these things. They can't even use the word woman. Yeah, they can't. You can't organise around sex-based mm. things. You mm. can't organise around lesbian, gay and bisexual things. You have to follow our dogma yeah. and i think that brings that kind of brings home another level of the way in which this is all based around a kind of very censorious approach to debate in fact they actually say explicitly that debate about this issue is transphobic yeah, in no and of debate. itself so it's you know the fact that they are being forced by their own hand in, yeah, in this they, court they, case they launched the lawsuit. into the into yeah. the public realm and being exposed and being forced to have a debate even though you know as i say lots of their representatives on the stand are just kind of putting their hands up um, I think is will go some way to it's the same with the Alison Bailey case. Yeah. Will go some way to I think shining a light on this area that has been so protected and kind of bubbled from any kind of scrutiny. Mm. I did just want to bring it back slightly to the silliness, just because you, you mentioned the Alison Bailey case. We've got to talk about, you know, one of their star witnesses who turned up insisting that they could only speak with their mother and with a support mm. animal. <laughs> I mean, this is the this is the weird world of gender ideology, I guess, isn't it? No, definitely. And I think as you know, you've both been talking about and as you started this section with, it's under the kind of glare of the courtroom that all of this stuff gets so brutally exposed. Mm. And you do see within that how people haven't been challenged at all on any of this yeah. nonsense. That's why they go to pieces. You often feel like some of these people who are in who are invited, not necessarily from Mermaids itself or from Stonewall itself, but 
perhaps just kind of well-wishers or people who are called to back them up, they don't seem to know what they're what it is they're supposed to believe either. You yeah. know, they've just sort of bought this very unthinking idea that the, this is this very progressive organisation and therefore I trust it implicitly, <laughs> whatever it says. But, you know, in a, in a situation like this when it is just about, you know, the cold clinical arguments, yeah, it can't stand up whatsoever. And I think we'll see more and more of these, especially if the sort of gender ideologues are going to continue to be so determined to score these own goals by pursuing groups they disagree <laughs> with in the courts, you know. And especially if they keep bringing in their emotional support dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.